Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for being with us for this episode. Well, folks, it's the holiday season. And as we head into it, are the gaps between haves and have-nots getting wider? Why are some in the media just started to pay attention to the real heroes of the 2022 World Cup? Because they're not much talked about, but they will remain heroes, no matter what the outcome of the games. Wonder how many mass shootings there have been since the start of November? The answer may surprise you. I know it surprised me. And why are so many January 6th staffers angry with Liz Cheney? Shall we begin? The holiday season is upon us with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, vying for our attention, and of course, our dollars. Now, one thing you should know about these holiday sales that go on, and I, I assume maybe uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday are done by the time you're hearing this. What a lot of, let's say, unscrupulous retailers do is hike the price of certain items during the summer so they get to a certain level so that by Black Friday and Cyber Monday, depending on what the product is, they discount it back down to maybe where it was before they raised it during the summer, and they call that a sale. Don't believe the hype, ladies and gentlemen. However, it's in this context that I found a recent article in the New York Times quite interesting. It talked about the divide between the well-to-do and the not-so-well-to-do. We all know that divide has been there for a very, very long time, probably back to the founding of the Republic. Maybe it's the times we live in, maybe it's COVID and its aftermath, but the divide seems to have become sharper. More troubling, the divide seems to be sucking more working people into the bottom half of that very same divide. What do I mean? People who make upper middle class money and above People who don't have to look at the prices in a supermarket are relatively insulated from inflation, price fluctuations, and prices at the gas pump. They just pay it and they don't worry about it. What feels different about these latest times is that big bulging middle class. The middle class that was essentially created after World War II. They're being dragged down by some of the same factors that the rich don't really have to worry about. They may not have to use food banks like many poor people do, but many fear that that could happen to them. In years past, the fears of the middle class were often, often that is, visited on the poor. This time around, some are looking up rather than down. They see those at the top of the food chain unaffected by the economic upheaval that has hit them hard and they're not happy about it. And then of course, there are the people who are traditionally hardest hit, the poor, working and non-working. Consider this statistic from the Times piece. According to the Federal Reserve, not me, the Federal Reserve, they know about these things. American families are sitting on $1.7 trillion in excess savings Excess savings. I don't even know what excess savings actually is, but it was accumulated during the pandemic. About 1.35 trillion of that 1.7 trillion 
rests in the wallets and pocketbooks of the upper half of wage earners in the economy. Only $350 billion accrues to the lower half. Now imagine how quickly that lower half money is eaten up by working people facing rising gas costs, rents, and food prices at the supermarket. Many of these folks, not those on welfare like some would have you believe, are those most directly hit by the measures that the Federal Reserve, that same Federal Reserve, are using to cool inflation, which it says will benefit these same people. It all ends up being a vicious cycle because the measures that they end up taking to cool inflation oftentimes mean that many people, many people among the working poor and lower middle classes end up losing their jobs as a result because the business cycle slows down, demand lessens, and the next thing you know, people are out of a job. But you know, on a certain level, the Federal Reserve at times, not always, but at times, will think that is preferable to raging and rising inflation. Now, imagine for a moment you're a single mother with a family of three children. You're working, but you're not making a lot of money. Your children are hoping for Christmas presents, just like everybody else's kids. Yet you can't pay the bills that come every month and still afford to buy those presents or even plan a bountiful Christmas dinner. Unless you can get more hours at work, and many do, you have to rely on the kindness of food giveaways and Christmas present giveaways. This may come as a shock to some people, but that single mom would love not to have to depend on others during this holiday season. She would much rather see the smiles on her children's faces come from presents and food that she could afford to buy them. In other words, yes, the poor has pride, or the poor have pride. Excuse my grammar there. If this all sounds like a vicious cycle, as I mentioned earlier, it is. And that's my point. Americans are being buffeted about by factors they played little role in creating. And the rich just keep floating above the fray, unaffected by it all. They don't even have to cancel their tea times at the golf courses they frequent or put off even for a day the lavish vacations they enjoy. The only thing they have to worry about is this. And this was told to me by a person with intimate knowledge on how the rich live. I was told if a hedge fund manager, as an example, makes $5 million a year, they end up spending $7 million a year. If they make $10 million, some will spend $12 to $15 million, and so on and so on, until the bubble bursts like it did in 2008. And that is their only fear. Up next, you may have heard about the controversy around the World Cup, now fully underway in Qatar, or Qatar, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But who are the real heroes putting themselves at risk for their beliefs? This is The Intersection. Happy festive season from Mark Riley and the team at The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. Controversy has swirled around this year's World Cup like few others in my memory. There's the illegality of homosexuality in Qatar, the treatment of migrant workers 
also in Qatar, and even denying some clubs the right to wear armbands. That one is on FIFA, the world governing body of soccer. Yet the most resonant protest for me was expressed by the Iranian national team. As many of you may know, there have been protests throughout that country after the death of a Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, in police custody. The crackdown against the protest have drawn widespread condemnation and a probe promised by the UN Human Rights Council. Prior to Iran's game against England, the national team refused to sing that country's national anthem. This was, in my mind, an extraordinary act of courage given the regime's violent suppression of dissent. They may have even risked arrest themselves when they returned from the World Cup. The government has already arrested a footballer who was not on the team for, quote, spreading propaganda against the Islamic Republic, end quote. Not taking away anything from the protests of others, but this is potentially putting themselves at risk to support people with a legitimate problem with their government. While on the one hand, you could argue that awarding the World Cup to Qatar in the first place was a grave mistake, so too is it a mistake not to laud the Iranian national team. I understand the whole armband thing. I understand how repressive it must seem to people who are wearing rainbow bucket hats to be told they couldn't wear them and to, in some cases, even have them confiscated by Qatari security forces. Now, to the average Westerner, that's insane, utterly insane. But it should tell you how autocratic regimes respond to symbolism and the possibility that symbolism alone can end up affecting change. We should keep that in mind moving forward. But I do think that the actions of the Iranian national team and the fact that they did this particular act, not singing. By the way, when the cameras were right on them, because, you know, before the matches start, when they play the national anthems, cameras have a tendency for most of these media outlets to pan across the different players to see, I guess, how many of them know what the national anthem is, how many of them care, how many of them are singing it with some feeling, whatever. The entire Iranian national team did not sing. And I have to say, pardon my ignorance, that I thought at first the Iranian national anthem had no lyrics, had no words, but it does. And those folks have guts, serious, serious guts. Closer to home, why are so many staff on the January 6th committee so upset with Liz Cheney? She has, of course, been portrayed as a heroine for relentlessly pursuing the truth behind the January 6th uprising. Now some staff, divided into teams absurdly based on colors, the green team, the red team, the gold team, what are we, grade school or something? Anyway, they say some of this staff, that Cheney is plotting her next political move by trying to focus the bulk of the investigation on Donald Trump. And she's got the clout to do it because she is vice chair of the committee. Although I'm no Liz Cheney fan, I do believe there is much about Donald Trump's role on January 6th that would never have been exposed 
without her dogged pursuit of the facts. Some staff are afraid with the leadership of the House passing into Republican hands in January that the committee's report will be gutted and their work not even included in the final report. They may have a point, but the public ought to know this. Stories like this, and see, this is something that you get to learn after a long period of time working in media. Because see, this was a major story in the Washington Post, major story, and it didn't get there by accident. Some of the people on the committee staff, I don't know who, I'm not familiar with the committee staff, but somebody on that staff contacted a reporter, dropped a hint, and the next thing you know, a story winds up in the paper. Now, there's more to it than just that. They do the research, et cetera, et cetera. But somebody on that staff that was mad at Liz Cheney contacted a reporter and said, you know what, there's a story here. We've got staff people that are really upset with her. We've got staff people who are saying that she's trying to write the next chapter in her political career on the backs of the work of the January 6th committee. Now, let's be frank, Liz Cheney wouldn't be the first, but the fact of the matter is, this is how stories get put in newspapers. Now, the Washington Post is a perfectly legitimate paper, and I am not impugning the facts that they have expressed in this particular piece. But we need to be clear about how that piece came to be and why it ended up in one of the major newspapers in this country. Now, keep in mind, who benefits from all this controversy around Liz Cheney and the January 6th committee, and specifically the committee itself? Who benefits Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan? That's who. They want to discredit the work of the committee in the first place. As for Liz Cheney's political ambitions, let the chips fall where they may. And finally, November has become a burial ground for victims of mass shootings. Any idea how many have fallen this month? I'll tell you shortly. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. 14 people dead, three mass shootings, two in Virginia, one in Colorado. And that's three of the 33 mass shootings in the U.S. for the month of November alone. 33 mass shootings. So far this year, the tally is a staggering 606. Let that sink in for a minute. 606 mass shootings, not deaths, mass shootings. And the year isn't even over yet. So much death, so much inaction. Americans' attitude about guns hasn't changed no matter how many mass shootings there are and how many innocent people are killed. Those who should know better hide behind the Second Amendment. Now, I got to be honest, I have been talking about the need to beg it better regulate firearms in America for a very, very long time. Back to the dawn of my career in media. I am, as a person, beyond frustrated with the needless loss of life to politicians allow to happen year after year after year. 606 mass shootings this year 
in America? Seems like it's a drop in the bucket to those who take money from the gun lobby. Because, you see, the gun industry makes money no matter who buys their product or how they're used. It's not just about mass shootings. And see, this is where we get into a very, very difficult and sometimes contentious trap. Because in many instances, people who are against gun regulation say, well, why are you concentrating on mass shootings? Why don't you start talking about shootings in Chicago or shootings in other major cities, New York or this one or Los Angeles or whatever. And it should be, should be relatively easy to push back on them by saying, we're not just talking about gun shootings, mass shootings. We're talking about gun violence generally, whether it's in Chicago, whether it's on Long Island in New York, or whether it's in some rural area in Montana. Shootings are shootings. People end up dead, whether it's one person or 13 people or five people or whatever. The problem for me is frustration, pure and simple. The souls of the dead are being sacrificed at the altar of the money the gun industry makes and the dollars they spend on blocking sensible gun legislation at virtually every level and virtually every term. Even through all this violence, some heroes have in fact emerged. Richard Fierro, an army veteran, I think he retired as a major, was at the Club Q in Colorado Springs. Now the Club Q is a gay LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He is credited with saving many lives by tackling the alleged shooter in that incident where five people died. It's past the point of asking when this will all end. Nothing, and I mean nothing, short of a gut-wrenching appraisal of who we are as Americans and how much death we are willing to tolerate in our country. That will change something. Short of that, nothing is going to change. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.